The sermon text this morning is Hebrews 10, 1 to 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, and offerings, and burnt offerings, and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your son. We give you thanks for the gathering of your people. Father, I pray that this morning you would speak by your living word, by your living spirit, directly into our hearts so that we see and know and love Christ more and more and more until the day that he returns. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for the water, Dan. In case you missed the Advent connection in our text this morning, look back at verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, and that's all that I want us to see for now. I know it seems small. seems like a passing comment. In the end, I think we will find that passing comment central to our text. So a few comments to orient us this morning. That word consequently, that launches our text, or, or therefore, depending on the translation that you have, that word connects Jesus coming into the world to something else as the conclusion or the solution or the consequence. So on the one hand, the text looks back from the vantage point of the incarnation to that which necessitated it. On the other hand, the text is going to look forward from the vantage point of the incarnation to the resolution. Because the text itself clarifies that the incarnation itself was not the full resolution, but it was a necessary, pivotal step along the way toward the resolution. In other words, the resolution would not have happened without the incarnation, brothers and sisters. To put it as plainly as I can in seasonal, celebratory language, without Christmas, brothers and sisters, incarnation, there is no Good Friday, the cross. There is no Easter Sunday, resurrection. 
We celebrate all three and none without the other, but each in distinction from the other for their unique significance and contribution toward the whole of our redemption. So the incarnation sits at the center of this text as the turning point of history from the problem to from the problem that preceded it to the solution that followed. Verses 1 through 4 force us to look back and understand the problem. Verses 5 through 10 pivot our focus forward toward the solution, but all the while, brothers and sisters, our feet remain firmly planted in verse 5 as the center to see the significance of the incarnation in God's purpose for our redemption. And of course, we know that there are nine chapters of context that lead us up to our text this morning and three and a half chapters that follow our text and explain our text and apply our text. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that it is a dangerous and delicate thing to just come in here this morning and drop in 10 chapters into a book that says as much as Hebrews says and zero in on these 10 verses. And to say almost nothing about the remaining three and a half. And I, I just want you to know this morning as I begin that I am mindful of the damage that I can do if I'm not aware of this and as careful as I can be with it. So we'll drop in here and there in the previous context and then in the following explanation. But there will be much from both that we will not touch on or connect. Therefore... If you want more context after this morning together, then I encourage you sit down, open your Bible, and keep going backward until the context becomes clearer to you. I promise that exercise will be worth it. Similarly, if after this morning you want more explanation and application, then I encourage you, once again, go home, make some coffee, open your Bible, and read on, brothers and sisters because there are many more implications and applications from Jesus coming into the world that are not even on my radar this morning. But may time and God's word give each of us a greater hunger to spend careful, thoughtful, prayerful, prayerful time in his word. And with that, the first look back from verse 5. What did Jesus' incarnation resolve? Or set the stage to resolve or take the step toward resolving, whichever way you want to word it. The one word that I would insist on keeping in whatever wording you choose is some form of the word resolve. Because that is the way the author frames the incarnation in this text with his use of the word therefore or consequently at the beginning of verse 5. You don't start a sentence that way unless you have a preceding context or argument in mind. So whatever verses 1 and 4 are going to reveal as the problem prior to the incarnation is solved or resolved at least in part by Jesus coming into the world. So with that, Let's refresh ourselves with verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had any consciousness of sins... 
But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder again of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's clear in the way that he begins that he's picking up on an argument already in place. Rather than introducing something new or shifting gears here. Four sense signals that reality, and we can get a feel for the argument that he's picking up on without going back to read chapters 1 through 9, just by scanning these verses again and taking note of these loaded key terms that he's carrying forward as he continues his argument in our text. So what are they? Just scan, scan the text. Law, shadow, realities, sacrifices, perfect or perfect, depending on your translation, sin, Sins, sins again, verse 4, bulls, goats. So he's talking about the law. He's talking about the sacrifices prescribed in the law. He's talking about their function and their limit. He's talking about shadows and he's talking about realities. He's talking about perfection. And he's talking about the goal which the laws and the sacrifices could never attain. So there's clearly a problem here. There's clearly problems here. There's clearly a weakness in the system here. So what is it or what are they? Three problems are revealed here with the law and with the system as a whole. They're inseparable, but they are distinct. And Christ's incarnation stepped toward resolving every one of them. So first, verse 1, the law was only a shadow. For since the law was but a sh has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, and that's as far as we're going to go for now, even though that's an incomplete sentence, I realize that. Because the other side of what he says is part of the inseparable but distinct second weakness that we'll talk about in a few moments. But for now, we're focusing simply on the law as a shadow. The argument for this has already been made in Hebrews, even if the author has not used this specific language yet in reference to the law until now. But what he argues here in reference to the law is part of the bigger argument that he's making in the book of Hebrews as a whole for the insufficiency of the Old Covenant in its entirety, including its laws as expressed here, or its tabernacle, or vessels of worship as he lists in chapters uh, um, eight and nine. And if we were to look back at those chapters, brothers and sisters, he sets off that whole discussion by positing even the Levitical priests themselves as serving these copies and shadows under a priesthood that he expresses elsewhere in the book with similar language. Why? Because if the laws under the covenant that instituted the priesthood were established as shadows to anticipate the arrival of the realities that they portended, then, brothers and sisters, the priesthood itself was established with the same inherent weakness and temporality in order to, one, serve for a moment, but two, to simultaneously create an increasing anticipation for an even greater and more permanent priesthood. 
one that would not be plagued by sin, one that would not be set back by death, and as you and I know, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews argues for in chapters 7 through 9. So law, tabernacle, vessels of worship, priesthood, we can add to that list the Old Covenant's mediator, which he argues for in chapter 3, as well as its messengers, which he argues for in chapters 1 and 2. And I'm sure we could even add more and more to that list if we were to look through the book in more detail than we are. And it's here that we must be careful, brothers and sisters, not to make an unwarranted jump. Because too many people too quickly read all of this in Hebrews and they jump on a bandwagon that the author himself is not steering in the book. Nor was Jesus on it when the Pharisees made the same jump and accused him of being on it. The author here isn't trashing the old covenant and its particularities as a failed project and therefore a shadow, but rather a fulfilled program that was established as a shadow and has now fulfilled its purpose. This is why Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but what? To fulfill it. So the old covenant didn't become a shadow through its failures. The connotation is never negative like that. It was always this by design. And the author's argument is that with the coming of Christ into the world, that shadow has served its purpose. It's given way to that for which it prepared the way. If the old covenant could be personified and speak, it would echo John the Baptist's wonderfully doxological words in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. I've done my job. I've prepared the way. The shadows have effectively captured the attentions and the affections of those who are under them. And in doing so, they've effectively prepared the way and the heart for the very realities that they were established to anticipate. By way of illustration, in as much as every single time a single-engine plane from the small crystal airport near my house or a 747 from MSP casts a shadow over my yard on a summer day, itself effectively captures my attention from whatever that I'm doing, but only for a moment. Only for a moment. Brothers and sisters, my eyes are never satisfied with the shadow alone, but by means of the shadow, my eyes are compelled upward until they become fixated on the far more incredible reality above. Notice the way the author talks about the law and the sacrifices and the tabernacle. He says in verse 1, they foreshadowed goodness, goodness, so that there is no contradiction between the shadow and the reality, but rather clarification. Also in verse 1, the shadows facilitated worship. In other words, they drew people near. And all of this was their design. It was the whole system's design as well as the parts of the whole. It was their design. The message of Hebrews is not that it was all fake and failure and futile. The message is it's not enough. 
It was never meant to be enough. It was all meant to cast a compelling shadow and create an increasingly worshipful anticipation. Like if you're standing in a dark room and the door swings open and casts a shadow on the wall in front of you in the form of the person that you love most, you're not going to run to the wall and attempt to embrace the shadow. You're going to turn around toward the light and run to the reality that caught your attention. But how did it catch your attention? By means of the shadow. I'm probably spending disproportionate time here. But one more thing before we move on, because I consider this um, a gracious providence of God toward me this week as I was mulling this over. It just granted imagery and clarity to what I was chewing on in this text. So I feel like to not share it with you wouldn't make any sense. I've been uh, listening to a book called um, The God Who Is There. Francis Schaeffer. Oh my, would I recommend it to you. Um, if I can oversimplify and use the language of Hebrews to capture where I've been recently in that audio book. Francis Schaeffer does this brilliant historical development of the efforts of um, modern philosophy and art and music and culture to find in the language of Hebrews the true forms of the realities. And every time their search ends below what he calls the line of despair. And I had a hard time moving beyond this first point this week because that is exactly what the author is in the book of Hebrews is trying to prevent in his readers because some among them, brothers and sisters, were drifting downward toward that line. The door had swung open for them as it has for us through the gospel. And the light of the gospel has shined, and it continues to shine on the law and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the whole system. But some among his readers were remaining fixated on the shadows on the wall instead of following them to the realities that they were designed to anticipate and signal. And I'm saying the law and the sacrifices and the system didn't keep their adherence below the line of despair by design, but brothers and sisters brought them above it in what each part and the whole foreshadowed. However, to remain fixated on the shadows, this is the point in the book of Hebrews, this is the issue at hand, to remain fixated on the shadows. Once the true forms have appeared is to misread and misuse the shadows and turn them into something that they were never meant to be, nor ever claimed to be, and to push yourself back downward toward the line of despair. And I think the line of despair in the book of Hebrews would be apostasy. That's what they were drifting downward toward. That's why this book has urgent life and death pleas scattered throughout. That's problem number one. In a way, it's problem number two and three because they're all inseparable that we'll work through here. And I think it's more helpful if we look at the solution to problem number one before moving on to problem number two. So we, we did the first look back. 
What did Jesus' incarnation solve or resolve? Well, number one, the law and the sacrifices and the system were just a shadow. So number two, what's the solution? What's the solution? What's the look forward from verse five? In other words, how does Jesus' incarnation resolve the shadowy nature of the law? Well, the short answer is, and the application is, to turn from the shadows to the realities. But that's not helpful. The question that the text begs is, what are the realities? What are the true forms? If we had hours this morning, we could go through that list of shadows and copies that the author has built in the book, and we could identify the true forms of the realities that they signaled. But the author is so kind in our text to do that work for us in a summary fashion. He does it beautifully in verse 5. Again, one of the weaknesses of the law and everything under it was its temporal nature. By design, it was not meant to be a true form of the reality that casts a shadow, but the shadow that signaled a greater and more detailed and more wonderful and enduring reality, the true form that would step into the world and into the light to make sense of everything. And verse 5 says, he did. He did, a person to solve or resolve the inherent problems and weaknesses of the law and its sacrifices. The shadows, in all of their different shapes and sizes, signaled one great reality, one true form. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Christ incarnate. The Son of God in human flesh is the true form of the realities. All the promises of God are yes in him, every one of them, brothers and sisters. But here is where the incarnation finds its central place in our text. Every one of the promises find their yes in Christ, but not a single one of them without verse 5. A body you have prepared for me. That's the turning point, the incarnation. It's the hinge upon which everything swings. Not a single one of the good things to come in verse 1 comes without the eternal Christ taking upon himself the body that the Father prepared for him. Go through every one of the shadows in Hebrews and you will see that the shadows give way to the true form of the realities only when, for instance, chapter 2, verse 7, Christ is made a little lower than the angels for a little while, but now is crowned with glory and honor, incarnation, exaltation. Or, chapter 2, verse 14, when Christ partakes of the same flesh and blood that is dying and enslaved, brothers and sisters share that's incarnation in order to destroy the devil and deliver us. That's Salvation, resurrection. Or chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. When Christ was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, 
but now is faithful over God's house as a son. That's incarnation, exaltation. Chapter 4, verse 10, when Christ came to bring the good news of, the, of true Sabbath rest to the people of God, incarnation, and then entered into that rest himself when he finished his work, that's exaltation. Or when Christ became like his brothers in every respect, incarnation. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, exaltation designated a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek to this day and eternally continuing in that office always making intercession for us that's chapter 7 verse 25 or when Christ appeared listen closely as a high priest of the good things that have come same language as our text incarnation then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. That's exaltation. Having appeared once for all at the end of the ages to die and coming again to save all who are eagerly waiting for him. Or finally... In our text, when Christ came into the world saying, I have come to do your will, O God, which meant to take upon himself the body prepared for him so that in human flesh, in the family of Abraham, he might fulfill by his perfect obedience the very law that had declared the world transgressors worthy of just retribution but then to lay down his perfect life as the required sacrifice and offering for his people's transgressions and in doing so fulfill the old covenant and inaugurate a new covenant that he himself would mediate in his exaltation and that his spirit would write on the tablets of the hearts of the people that he regenerated and sealed and is sanctifying on their way to glory. This is how the endless and eternal good things of verse 1 come to us in and under the new covenant? Yes, absolutely. Through Christ the mediator? Yes, absolutely. By the Holy Spirit who indwells us? Yes, absolutely. From the Father as the source who loves us? Yes, absolutely. But all, all, because Christ first came into the world saying, sacrifices and offerings you do not desire but a body you have prepared for me. And in that body, and by his perfect obedience, and by his sacrificial death, and by his triumphant resurre resurrection, he secured it all for us and mediates it all to us by his spirit. Brothers and sisters, I think we have all come to recognize the book of Hebrews as the book that declares Jesus as better or greater or superior to all things, and he is. But what struck me so hard this past week is that all the comparisons he's making in this wonderful book, they're not random. In other words, he's not just randomly jumping from angels to Moses to tabernacle to priesthood to law. He's actually making the most concentrated argument that we have for the inherent goodness 
but the inherent limits of the old covenant and every aspect of it. And at every major turning point in the writer's argument from shadow to reality is the Christ. His death and resurrection and exaltation and mediation, but none, brothers and sisters, without the incarnation. So when the author of Hebrews attributes the words of David in Psalm 40 to Jesus in chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, and then again in verses 8 and 9, it's not that God came to somehow get sick of the sacrifices and offerings, failing to do what he had hoped they would be able to do, but rather that he never took pleasure in those shadows in and of themselves, but rather in the reality that they represented. It's the only basis upon which they had any effect whatsoever and no effect apart from it. Brothers and sisters, this is why the prophets condemn so hard those who continue to offer sacrifices and offerings as pleasing acts in themselves without any concern for faith and worship and future-oriented hope and anticipation in the greater reality that they represented. This is the author's point in quoting Psalm 40 and attributing it to Jesus. To quote Tom Schreiner, David is saying that such offerings without obedience and consecration to the Lord are meaningless. Meaningless. Which is why after David says, I've come to do your will, O God, he also says your law is within my heart, even in the world of types and shadows. But when the fullness of time came, for the greater reality to manifest himself bodily, to do the will of God as the Lamb of God, to continue to offer calves and goats and lambs, however sincere the worshiper may be or not, is to disbelieve in the reality and disobediently carry on in the land of shadows, to reject the true form and to embrace the shadows even though the shadows themselves, if they could be drawn with human features, would be pointing you away from them toward the reality. And the writer is simply pleading with the people, even as I plead with you this morning, brothers and sisters, how shall we escape? How will you escape? If we or if you neglect such a great salvation, he's saying you won't. They wouldn't, you won't. The alternative is the very just retribution that he himself came bodily to save us from. And I don't suspect that this is new information to you. This shadow and reality language. But the word of God is living and active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit himself might thrust the sword of his word by way of these reminders and discern the thoughts and intentions of every heart here. 
because neither you nor I nor any other creature is hidden from his sight, but totally, spiritually, naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And brothers and sisters, let that day be one of joy and not of grief by turning from the shadows to the reality and clinging to him by faith as your first love and persevering in that faith to the end. So the second look back from verse 5, what else did Jesus' incarnation resolve? Still in verse 1 and down through verse 2, the law and its sacrifices could not perfect the worshipers. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, my immediate question is, what does he mean by perfect? Or make perfect? Let's explore this. What should stand out grammatically is that the author is basing the law's inability to perfect the worshiper, first of all, on its temporal nature as a shadow. And while that doesn't seem related, it does provide a clue. It was designed to be temporary, to give way, to not take us to the end, but prefigure or signal or create an anticipation for what could. But what does that mean specifically? This word is used all over the place in Hebrews. And the examples give a ton of clarity. So let's keep our verses in mind. The law, by its sacrifices, could never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, the author argues, will they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So it's creating a picture for us. Get it in your mind. The picture is of worshipers coming near with offerings and sacrifices for sins and drawing near through the means provided and doing so year after year after year because the means could never, not in a million years, fully, finally, definitively cleanse the conscience or remove the guilt. And that, it's that removal of guilt that is the most obvious thing to focus on here. But before we get there, don't dismiss the imagery that we've created so quickly. The imagery, again, is the worshiper approaching because of sin, by faith, with sacrifices, and with guilt. And the striking imagery, brothers and sisters, is that the worshiper is permitted to draw near and then what? Turned away until next year. Then allowed to draw near and then turned away. Until the following year. And that is the author's point. The worshiper comes even if by faith with sacrifices and offerings for sin and is received but then turned away year after year after year. Guilt remaining, consciousness of sins remaining, awareness that the same process will need to take place again at the same time next year remaining. The argument in this text is that the clear conscience and the cleansed heart of the worshiper would have automatically ended the sacrificial system if it could accomplish that for those people. So the commandment itself compelled 
the ongoing nature of the system from without, but the ongoing nature of the sacrifices were compelled from within the conscience of the worshiper as well because they could not be freed from the guilt of sin by means of goats and calves. No matter how long, how many years they offered them, the law and the sacrifices could not finish the job but only hold the place until the time came when the one who could stand before God is a guiltless high priest himself who could offer a sacrifice that would not be merely provisional and turn the people away with guilt until next year, but final, full, definitive, to cleanse the conscience and remove the guilt and not merely allow the worshiper to come so far but no further, but rather all the way through, once for all. That's the perfection the shadows could never attain on behalf of the worshiper. And that was the goal. So number two, the look forward. From verse five, how does Jesus' incarnation resolve the law's inability to perfect the worshiper? Short answer, he himself through his incarnation, was perfected and guarantees the perfection of all who are united to him by faith. If I may be permitted to leap from Hebrews to Paul in Philippians 1, this is that wonderful promise of chapter 1, verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, which is a sure word from the Lord. But on what basis? By promise, yes. But brothers and sisters, not by promise alone. Perfection, us being brought safely through this life to the end and into the presence of God for all of eternity, which has been the goal since the garden, is not a blind promise, brothers and sisters. Our perfection is grounded in an objective reality. And that objective reality is the finished work of Jesus. In other words, Christ's own perfection. So let me draw us to a few verses in Hebrews. 2.10. Christ was, quote, made perfect through suffering, tasted death for everyone, and was brought safely to glory. By means of his own perfection, he now brings many sons to glory all the way home. Fully, finally, definitively, perfectly. Chapter 5, verse 9 says the same thing. Christ was made perfect by his sufferings. And not himself only, but being made perfect, he became the source of what? Annual atonement? To all who obey him, no. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. One more. Chapter 7, verse 28, because I think this gets at the heart of it. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And if you just ignore the chapter division, he makes this point in chapter 8, verse 1, the next verse. 
Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. He was made perfect through suffering and death and welcomed in through resurrection and exaltation and not just him alone, but, all, but once for all. For all who draw near to the Father, through him as the Father's Son, and their Savior and King, and the high priest appointed by God for that very purpose, to enter, enter once for all into the holy places by means of his own blood and mediate the new covenant to us, so that, chapter 9, verse 15, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. If the problem expressed in chapter 10 was the full, final, definitive cleansing of the conscience, chapter 9 issues the resolution this way. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purge your conscience, what the law could never do. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Our text says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, he secured it and he's able to deliver on it. Verses 19 through 22, draw the connection to the incarnation beautifully and make application for us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, listen carefully, because what he's about to say is um, the direct contrast with what he said the law and its sacrifices were unable to do. He says, let us draw near now with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Problem number one, the law was a shadow. What's the answer? Christ is the reality, the true form. Turn from the shadow and cling to him by faith. Problem number two, the law and its sacrifices couldn't finish the job. Make perfect, cleanse the conscience, remove the guilt, bring a person all the way in for good, behind the veil, forever. Answer, Christ was made perfect through suffering and death and welcomed in through the veil to the throne, through resurrection and exaltation to rule as king and mediate as priest to bring us into where he is eternally. So let us draw near by faith, with confidence, through Christ, and in union with Christ. Number three, the third look back from verse five. What else did Jesus' incarnation resolve? It's, it's inseparable but distinct. The law and its sacrifices, verse four, could never take away sins. 
The wording of the text is even stronger. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 2 said that the law and its sacrifices could never cleanse the conscience. And here the angle is just adjusted ever so slightly toward the removal of sins. In reality, if the latter could have ever been accomplished by the law and its sacrifices, then the former would have been accomplished as well as the natural consequence. And then as verse 2 argues, the whole system comes to its natural end. But verse 3 presents the reality of the weakness of the system. The ongoing nature of the sacrifices carries along with it. Not the removal of sins, but the ongoing reminder of sins. A few things to explore here. Most pressing is, what does he mean by take away? Most obvious place to begin is with the term with which it's contrasted, and that is the term reminder. So at minimum, take away is the removal of reminder. But if we back up even further, we remember that the, re that the reminder of sin that the animal sacrifices gave, gave included an inescapable and ongoing guilt of conscience. So if sins could be taken away, so would the guilt. The conscience would be cleared. And to back up even further and continue to press his logic, this ongoing reminder of sin and inescapable guilt of conscience is what prevented the worshipers from drawing near and staying near. So if sin could be fully, definitively taken away, and then the conscience would be cleared, and the sacrifices would come to an end, then the way in, brothers and sisters, near to God would be open once and for all. And for all who came by faith and what the sacrifices could accomplish, that's what he's saying. And he's saying no amount or extent or quality of animals could ever accomplish that. He says it's impossible. So what's he getting at? Look at verse 5. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Verse 6. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then again, verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. And then I think he adds this little parenthetical interpretive clue when he says, parentheses, these are offered according to the law. That's his commentary on the text he's quoting. And I think it bears a lot of significance I th because I think he uses those four terms to capture or summarize the totality of the sacrificial system as a whole. Sacrifices and offerings in general, all of them, and in particular, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure in and of themselves because animals cannot do the job for man. They can't take away sin. They can't cleanse the conscience. They can't bring the worshiper all the way in to stay sanctified, glorified. And since he's highlighting the failure of the annual Day of Atonement sacrifices, I think the term take away has most specifically to do with the impossibility of animal sacrifices to fully, finally, definitively expiate and propitiate 
In other words, to pay the penalty, to remove the guilt, to appease the wrath. So number three, the final look forward from verse five. How does Jesus' incarnation solve that problem? How does Jesus' incarnation resolve the inability of the law and the sacrifices to take away sins or to expiate sin and guilt and propitiate wrath, brothers and sisters? This is the point to which the entire argument has been building Notice he attributes verse 40 to Jesus twice in this text. I've always thought that a bit strange. But there is a slight difference. The first time, verses 5 through 7, he contrasts the body prepared for Jesus as God's solution to the sacrifices and offerings that he did not desire. And in that body, Jesus pledges to do the will of God. But then in verse 8, he circles back and quotes the text again, but he adds his commentary. We've already noted the significance of that parenthetical comment. Because God is expressing his ultimate displeasure with the sacrificial system as a whole. But then in verses 9 through 10, he tells us specifically what the will of God was that Jesus pledged to do in the body that God prepared for him in his incarnation. Verse 9, he says, to do away with the first, that which he took no ultimate pleasure in, in order to establish the second. In other words, that which he took ultimate pleasure in. Now, what does all of that mean? Verse 10 tells us. And by that will, in other words, the will that Jesus came to do in the body prepared for him, somehow to do away with the first and establish the second, by that will we have been, it's past action with ongoing results, we have been what? Sanctified, brothers and sisters. What the law and its sacrifices could never do in a million years of unblemished lambs. Christ did bodily. How? At what point? He tells us through the offering of the body. Incarnation. Of Jesus Christ once for all. The whole system fulfilled in a single offering. Expiation, propitiation, sin taken away as far as the east is from the west. Guilt removed. And the worshiper brought near. Verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Brothers and sisters, the line of despair is real. The reality of living below it comes out most clearly around the holidays for many people. And much of the world lives far below that line and will feel it intensely, intensely these next few weeks, trying through endless means to get above it and falling back down every time, often to even greater despair. Faith alone in Christ alone is the only way above the line toward what, the Hebrews, toward what Hebrews says is a better hope. And you, you are likely the obvious means to tell them but that is not the author's audience here, nor his primary applications. 
His applications, brothers and sisters, are to the church because he's confronting people in the church whose theology is pushing them back down toward the line by turning from the realities back to the shadows, by drifting away through guilt instead of drawing near by faith that Christ has removed guilt, and by continuing to offer up their own contributions toward forgiveness by unbelief that Christ's sacrifice has truly canceled sin and appeased every drop of wrath that was in their cup, your cup. So the author makes three applications that I'm just going to mention and then close. How do we respond to all of this? Christ came bodily to turn us from the shadows to himself as the reality, to clear the conscience, to expiate sin and guilt, to appease the wrath of God, to sanctify us until he glorifies us with him forever. And the author doesn't simply say, now rejoice, go home, be merry. He says, now fight. Now fight. Fight by faith in the reality and persevere together in that faith. Why? Because everything is going to oppose you persevering in, by faith in these realities. Everything. The world, the flesh, the devil, the shadows, your conscience, your sin is going to relentlessly work to pull you back down toward the line of despair. So how do you fight? How do you fight? Same chapter, three commands, all plural. This is corporate life, brothers and sisters. This message is to the church. Verse 22, draw near together to your great high priest. Why? Because the way is open and he offers mercy and help in time of need. Verse 23, number two, hold fast together to your confession of hope without wavering on what basis? His faithfulness. Number three, verse 24, stir one another up to love and good works by gathering together, by encouraging one another, and by gathering together, and by encouraging one another, and all the more, brothers and sisters, until... The second advent makes all things new. So let me close in prayer. Our Father, the time in your word, I trust has been worth it. Father, to see your good designs never gets old because to see Christ every time in them is the one who came, who lived, who died, who rose, who ascended, who reigns, who mediates, and who's coming again is the substance on which our faith today hangs. It will keep us above the line of despair. Lord, bless your church. Lord, help them fight together to the end when Jesus comes again. May none be lost. In Jesus' name, amen.